Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to keep that one open, if I may suggest, and have it open in front of us as we think about it for a few minutes now. Uh, but in fact, if you've got it there, just as we begin, would you just flip over the page forwards to Romans chapter 8? Um, because this is where Paul is heading over the next few chapters in what he's saying. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. 
Uh, Paul gets to the point where he says, and those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And uh, we're going to be building up to thinking about those things over the coming weeks. Um, But I want to say as I start that I want you to hear this message this morning, um, the message of Romans 5, if you are someone who has who's ever struggled to be sure that you, that you can know that God loves you, um, if you have ever uh, wondered, does he really count me as righteous, ever doubted that he calls you to be his child, then this is a passage for you this morning, um, complicated though it may seem at first reading. Uh, there's kind of a big deep breath at the end of Romans chapter 4, if you've been with us over the, the last few weeks. Uh, Because Paul has has reached there the end of the first part of what he wants to say in this letter to the Christians in Rome. And then in Romans 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, following on from all of that stuff, since we have been justified by faith, this is what comes next. And that's been the big theme of the first four chapters of Romans. Uh, The theme that those belong to Jesus have already been justified. In other words, been declared to be righteous in God's sight and in a good relationship with him. And it's all on the basis of faith, because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, well, what follows on from that? And spoiler alert, if chapters 1 to 4 have been all about this idea of justification, having a right standing before God, then verses 5 to 8 are going to be all about glorification, culminating there in chapter 8 and verse 30. Those God has called... uh, and justified, he also glorified. Um, Since we've been justified, we've been declared to be at one with God, uh, then we can know for sure that he will be with us now, and we can be confident of the eternal life that he promises us. So if Romans 1 to 4 was all about faith, then 5 to 8 is all about hope. It's looking ahead. Uh, And not a vague hope, but a guaranteed hope. As Paul says here in verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And so we've got two parts in chapter 5 here, um, fairly obviously in our reading. In part 1, verses 1 to 11, we go from faith to hope. And then in part 2, verses 12 to 21, we've got this comparison between being in Adam and being in Christ. So we're going to look at those two things, primarily at the first one, though, a little bit longer on that. The first thing in verses 1 to 11 is simply that there is a hope that is certain for all those who belong to Christ, who are in him. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what are the things which follow on from that? Um, You may remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago in Romans 3 that when Paul talks about Christians being justified, it's kind of like the judge in a court declaring that you are in the right that after all the evidence has been presented, after all the litigation's gone on, you know, you can go away vindicated, declared, not guilty. And that is the judgment day verdict from God's heavenly throne ahead of time for all those who belong to Jesus Christ. By faith in him, we're justified. So what does that mean for us? Well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, it means we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What do you think of when I say we have peace? Um, Maybe you think of being peaceful. Maybe you think of a quiet walk along a beach. 
or through the countryside or something like that. It's what we often mean by peace, isn't it? Um, sometimes you might think about, particularly if you're, if you're parents perhaps, a bit of peace and quiet. It's one kind of peace, isn't it, which sometimes we long for. But if you were to ask someone who, who lives or has lived in a war zone, I imagine they would say to us, there's a bit more to that. There's a bit more to peace than just that. Uh, peace is more practical than just a sense of peacefulness. It means not fighting anymore. It means not being at risk of attack, doesn't it? Peace means the conflict is over. The danger has gone. The first bit of good news, because we've been declared justified, is that God is at peace with us. Despite the fact that, as we read a couple of weeks ago, all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his sense of justice has been completely satisfied. He has nothing to hold against us, any of us. And so we have nothing to fear. We don't have to wonder how will we stand when we stand before him in judgment, what will happen. The answer's already been given. He will say, you're one of mine. You're one of Jesus's. You are righteous in my sight. And so the result of all of this is that we have access now to a new relationship with God. Uh, we'll hear much more about the work of that Holy Spirit in these four chapters. But peace with God effectively means that he's filled us with his spirit and he counts us as friends. That's the word that gets used here, isn't it? We're invited to know him and enjoy him for ourselves. So the first thing that results is that there is peace with God and it's more than a feeling. It's a reality. Second thing is that we have a guarantee for our future, that we will share in God's glory. And so in the meantime, we rejoice or even boast in this hope because whatever happens to us in the meantime... And Paul says, including going through times of suffering, verse 3. We'll come back to that in a minute. We know that the future God has in store for us is completely assured. There is nothing that can take it away. As chapter 8 will famously say when we get there, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So those are the two great promises which follow on from what Jesus has done at the cross uh, in making us justified before God. Peace with God now, the presence of God forever. Uh, how can we be sure of these things? Well, Paul goes on to give us some reasons. And there's kind of a subjective side of it and an objective side. Um, first of all, in verse 5, God has given us his Holy Spirit. This big theme which we're going to see quite a lot of in the next few weeks. And so there's a sense that as those who belong to Jesus, we get to experience his presence with us for ourselves. And we're reminded of God's love, which will not allow the hopes of his children to be taken away. I'm sure many of us here can testify at different times in our lives to just having that sense that God is with us. Um, that sense of, of assurance that comes from within because the Spirit is at work there, which is really good news. Um, but secondly, and this is good news as well, we can be sure of these things objectively. And we need this sometimes, don't we? Because uh, at times in our, in our lives, we can't trust our feelings and we question uh, what we feel and what we hear. And so Paul gives us more than that. The proof of God's love and commitment to us is that Jesus died on the cross in our place. Uh, we're told he did it even though we were God's enemies. That's what our sin made us. But God's love... And that's the motivation for what God, God does again and again in these chapters. Because of God's love and his utter commitment to his people. 
in the death of his perfect son for those who were his enemies. That is why we can now be sure that we may have peace with him forever as his friends. Hope for the future, the guarantee of his eternal presence and love with us. And we can be sure of that, verses 9 to 11, because if he did this for us when we were still his enemies, how much more, in that great repeated phrase, will we be rescued and reconciled now we are his friends? So, where does that leave us now? What difference does that make for us? Well, I'm speaking to you uh, as, as Christian believers this morning, as those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. All of this is true of you. Um, if that is not you this morning, there may be someone here and uh, you're here because you want to think about these things of God, but maybe you, you're not sure you want to claim them for yourselves yet. Well, God is saying to you in Romans 5 this morning, if that is you, this is what I'm offering to you in Jesus Christ. This is available freely to you, whoever you are. And there is no cost because Jesus has paid the cost already. But for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus and you would wear that label Christian, you would call yourself a believer, what does this mean? Well, I don't know if you noticed as we heard it read that Paul talks here about our past, our present, and our future. In the past, as I already said, we have been justified. Verse 1. This is not in doubt because it's been done. It doesn't depend on us or how we feel. The verdict has been announced already ahead of time because of what happened at the cross. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. It's an act in history. It happened. In the future, therefore, we can know that we will be saved. Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved through his life? When judgment day comes, which Jesus has said it must, because there are things in our world, aren't there, which need to be judged and set right. The world is not right at the moment. When that comes, we will have nothing to fear. And there's that great repeated phrase, how much more? Verse 9, if the cross has justified us, how much more shall the resurrection rescue us? Verse 10, if we were reconciled to God as his enemies, how much more shall we be saved as those who are now his friends? So if the past is justification by his blood and the future is guarantee of glory in his presence, well, what does this mean for now? What does it mean for the present? And verses 3 to 5 deal with this question. And it might seem surprising. Paul writes, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces uh, perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, glorying in our sufferings might sound like a strange thing to do. None of us enjoy suffering, do we? We naturally and quite rightly pray for God's help when we are going through pain and suffering. I think that's part of Paul's point, in fact. Um, You may remember in the Old Testament, the pattern of what happened was that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He gave them the promise of a new and wonderful land which would be theirs, but it took them quite a long time to get there, and they ended up spending a long time in the desert, in the wilderness, and it was not easy, but there were many things they needed to learn along the way. Well, for Paul, that Exodus picture is really just a picture of the even bigger rescue that God has given to us in Jesus, who has rescued us from slavery, 
not just in Egypt, but the slavery of sin, who has given us this huge promise of heaven, of eternal life, of the presence of God forever. But sometimes in the meantime, well, we find ourselves between there and there, don't we? And we find ourselves walking in the wilderness and facing the desert. And the journey can be hard because the world is broken. And I'm well aware that it will be hard for some of us here this morning right now. I know that some of us are going through really difficult times, tough times. And sometimes we ask what it's all about, don't we? And we pray to God for help. We may not get answers to all of our particular questions this side of the age to come, and I don't pretend to have them. But what we do have here in Romans 5 is the assurance that God has not left us in the midst of those things, that he is still at work even when things are tough, perhaps especially when we face suffering. Remember, he's the God who knows himself what it means to suffer. That's what Paul has been all about in these first four chapters. And Paul knows from his own personal experience that God often grows faith into hope in the midst of suffering, producing perseverance and character and causing us to cling to the hope we have in Christ, perhaps in ways we wouldn't always do if everything was just fine. Because in the midst of it all, we have this guaranteed promise of peace with God and his presence with us. So that's the first part of Romans 5. It's a great promise of the certain hope that is there for everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ, who belongs to him. Um, Secondly, and a bit more briefly, we also have this gift of life through Jesus Christ in verses 12 to 20, 21. And I don't know what you thought as we got to the second half of the chapter. If, if the first half of Romans 5, uh, one, one person described it as, as admiring a Rembrandt. You know, it's a, it's a carefully crafted, really sort of beautiful piece of writing, isn't it, where we can appreciate what God is saying to us as, through these verses. And then we get to verses 12 to 21, and it's more like admiring a Picasso or a Dali. It's still maybe beautiful. It's certainly carefully crafted, and, and uh, it's, it's full of meaning, but it's just a little bit weird, and it's not linear, and it's a bit harder to understand what is going on. I want to say, despite the fact that's the case, I think Paul's overall point here is relatively straightforward, that Jesus has released us from the penalty of sin, and in the end, there were only ever two camps. Uh, you can be in Adam's camp, or you can be in Jesus' camp, the camp of the second Adam. That's what's going on. And Paul makes his point from several angles. Um, In verses 12 to 14, he talks about Adam as the, the head, kind of the representative of the whole human race. He's the one through whom sin got started. He's the one uh, in whom all of us have sinned and turned away from God in one way or another. Uh, But the gift of God is greater than the penalty for the trespass of humans. And so his grace in Jesus overflows to the many. Um, Basically, however big the mess that we've got ourselves into as the people of Adam, God's answer is in Jesus, and he is so much greater. And the answer is so much greater. And so if Adam's actions bring condemnation on all of us who belong to him, verses 16 and 17, how much more? Once again, will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? 
Um, there's that stuff about the law, which comes up in verses 13. It's a different angle on the same things. And verses 20 to 21, it's about the law of Moses that were given to the people of Israel. The basic point is that sin doesn't start when someone puts a sign up to say, don't do that or do this. You know, if, if you didn't see the speed limit sign, doesn't mean that you can go whatever speed you want to, does it? Now, if there isn't actually a sign that's visible on the gate saying you can't just go onto this person's land and build a house and light a fire, um, you're still trespassing if you just go ahead and do those things. You're still guilty, basically. But verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So just as sin reigned in death, so grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's basically, however much you pile on this side of the scale, you cannot outdo Jesus. You just can't do that. However guilty you may think you are in Adam, and we are guilty in Adam, that Jesus is greater and is able to set us free, which is why I said at the beginning of today's sermon that this is for you if you ever doubt that you are really saved by Jesus. If you ever wonder, does he really love me? Like I kind of know somewhere in my head the Bible says he does. It is clear in these verses, through faith, we are taken by God from the camp of Adam into the camp of Jesus Christ, from the camp of birth to the camp of new birth. And that is God's gift to us. And so once again, and we've seen this before, and we keep on seeing it in Romans, what we see is that in Romans 5, Paul has a radical view of human wickedness. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He's not polite about who we are or where we would stand if we were still with Adam. Without the work of Christ, without faith in him, we are condemned to death and would not survive God's judgment. But Paul also has a more radical view of God's love and into the, the nightmare of a life without a rescuer and without hope, into this world of war and of pain and of neglect and illness and all the other things that we're all too aware of, comes God's love in human form. Comes Jesus Christ, the abundant provision of God's grace and gift of righteousness, so that those who receive him will reign in life. And we might say that in a world which is in many ways like a garden where someone has deliberately planted weeds that bear deadly fruit of all kinds and are poisonous, illness and brokenness and pain and suffering, rejection of God's ways, in that world the grace of God has been planted alongside and it's a vibrant plant, a vine if you like, that is far stronger and far more powerful than the weeds. How much more, as Paul would say, and it takes over the soil and it produces this life-giving harvest and the weeds cannot overcome it. Now it takes faith to see this, of course, doesn't it? And to act on it because it's so easy to look around at the world with the eyes of doubt and just see the mess and see the things which are wrong and there are many things that are wrong uh, and the pain. And many people today, as always, are blind to what God has done in Jesus. And maybe that's some of us today. But if you're trusting in Jesus, that is the faith to believe that God has raised him from the dead and that therefore his cross, verse 16, was the free gift following many trespasses. That the one man's obedience, verse 19, is what makes many righteous. 
And once we've seen the truth of that, well, we can't unsee it again, can we? Uh, God is faithful, and he will hold on to you in the desert, if that's where you find yourself, or in the storms. And so we can continue to boast, verse 2, in the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning. Uh, We thank you for many things already, and there is so much. But we thank you especially that you have moved us from death to life. That all those who turn to you, you you declare as righteous in your sight, and you give us the promise of glory. Thank you that that does not depend on how we feel or on how well we're doing, but it depends entirely on you, and you are faithful. And Lord, I want to pray for any who are here today who find that hard to believe, who just uh, recognize perhaps particularly easily their own failings, as we sometimes do. And Lord, I pray that you would set in our hearts that sense of the presence of your Spirit, that guarantee that you will never let us down. And in the meantime, Lord, I want to pray especially for those who may be going through times of suffering, those who are facing sadness or illness or grief, whatever it might be, worries and anxieties. Lord, that you would, in the midst of those things, be reassuring us of your presence and teaching us to cling to the cross and to the promises you've given us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.